Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on Rainforests. Altamira, Brazil, February 1989. 35 of Brazil's Indian nations have assembled with other native leaders from throughout the Americas, some from as far away as the Queen Charlotte Islands. It's the first time that so many of the disparate and dispersed Indian peoples of Brazil have been gathered together. They have come to this frontier town on the Xingu River to protest Brazil's plans to build a series of dams on the Xingu, dams that will flood the homes and destroy the livelihood of many of the peoples gathered here. The man who has brought them together is a young Kayapo chief called Payakan. Payakan's invitation is what I am responding to. The voice of Payakan echoed in the valley of the people where I live, and that's why I'm here to be with you. During the last few years, Payakan has emerged not just as a leader of his own people, but also as a voice for all of Brazil's embattled Indians. He has led the expulsion of gold miners from Kayapo territory and forced changes in Brazil's new constitution with militant demonstrations in the capital, Brasilia. He has lobbied the World Bank in Washington and been charged with sedition by his own government. And he has brilliantly adapted the warrior traditions of his people to the symbolic warfare of the media age. Much of the struggle to preserve the vast Amazonian rainforest will hinge on the struggle of Brazil's Indians to protect their lands and their way of life. And so tonight, we present the journey of Payakan, a profile of this young Indian leader and of the violent, expansive Brazilian society with which he is locked in struggle. The program is written and presented by David Cayley. It begins with Payakan addressing a meeting in Toronto last fall. Muito obrigado a todos que estão interessados, que está com bom senso de ver e ouvir. Like to thank all of you who have come here using your good common sense in order to be able to listen to what he has to say, that he has come from a land that is very, very far away because he wants to be able to speak directly to you and tell you what the problems are that his people are experiencing in Brazil. Se tiver um passeio seria outra coisa. Essa visita não é de passeio. É porque eu tentando a força, a luta, a experiência, o conhecimento que o it was the evening of November 28, 1988, and the tableau was striking. Paya Khan stood with his translator, American anthropologist Catherine Howard, in the ornate gold pulpit of St. Paul's Anglican Church on Toronto's Bloor Street. He wore a headdress of luminous pink and green parrot feathers, and his face was painted. He surveyed a crowd of some 3,000 people, with others being turned away at the door, he had come to raise the issue of Canadian involvement in World Bank financing for the hydro dams that will flood the Xingu River region where he lives. 
and he invited his audience to join his people in their struggle. Essa luta I would like everybody here to understand that this time I don't want this to be just a struggle of my people. I would like everybody here to be involved in this struggle together because what happens to the rainforest and the Amazon concerns everybody here. Each and every one of us can be involved in this struggle because if these hydroelectric dams go through, all of the lands will be flooded, the forest will be destroyed, the fruits will disappear, the game will run away, and the fish will be destroyed in the rivers. Therefore, I have come here to ask you to join us in this struggle together. The struggle of Paya Khan and his people is an old one. When Europeans first arrived in the lands which today comprise Brazil's vast empire, anthropologists estimate that the population of the Amazon basin may have been as high as six million people. These nations are so near each other, wrote a Portuguese priest in 1649, that from the last villages of one, they hear the people of the other at work. 350 years later, most of the native cultures of Brazil are extinct their languages forgotten, their customs unrecorded, and their knowledge lost forever. Some fell to fire and the sword, the rest to disease and demoralization. Today, the survivors of this Holocaust number less than 200,000, and their trials have only begun. In 1964, the civilian government of Brazil was overthrown by a military coup, the new regime saw its northern hinterland as the answer to many of its most pressing problems, and two years later, the generals launched Operation Amazonia. Their objectives were to increase food production, relieve land pressure in the more populous parts of the country, and secure Brazil's northern borders, both by direct military occupation and by more thoroughly integrating the region into the Brazilian economy. The way they went about it says Brazilian specialist Susana Hecht of UCLA, was to try to attract the capitalists of southern Brazil to the north. To do that, they began to work with some of the Brazilian entrepreneurs from the south and um, to develop a series of policies that would permit them to move into the region, that is to permit entrepreneurs to move into the region at virtually no cost. The fundamental legislation provides fiscal incentives of 75 percent, that is to basically capital grants, tax holidays of up to 17 years, subsidized credit lines, um, free import duties, and um, the po important point also is the tax holidays, that is you could get a 17-year tax holiday on your industrial or holdings outside of Brazil. It was not just the taxes you would pay on your Amazon area. So. If you were a Volkswagen do Brasil or a Vilares do Brasil, it would be very attractive to get a tax holiday for 17 years. In fact, wouldn't we all like one? So this was the kind of thing where people said, oh, sure, let's go into the Amazon. Who the hell cares whether it makes money or not, since the, the savings in taxes on our productive enterprises will be so substantial. These subsidized corporate pioneers were joined by a rising tide of freelance settlers. An ambitious network of roads was created, and the Amazon land boom was underway. Neither ranching nor agriculture proved sustainable on the region's generally poor soils, 
but the boom continued regardless, stimulated by road construction, gold discoveries, land consolidation which forced farmers out of the agricultural south, and of course, the lavish subsidies. Operation Amazonia also involved extensive industrial development, mainly mines, charcoal-fired smelters to be fueled by the forests, and hydroelectric dams. In a document called Plano 2010, the Brazilian hydroelectric utility, Electrobras, has laid out plans to build 136 hydro dams over the next 20 years, many of them in the Amazon, like the dams on the Xingu, which threaten the Kayapo. They are intended to create growth poles, so-called, which will attract industry with the promise of cheap power. But according to Peggy Hallward, the director of forestry research with Toronto's environmental watchdog, Probe International, they also have a military rationale. The military wants to increase the population in the Amazon um, for what they say are security reasons, even though there are no threatening neighbours. However, they say that they will not be happy until the Amazon is opened up and developed, and they don't consider that the native people living there are good Brazilian citizens that will be a good line of defense. They want people of European background, true Brazilian citizens, to be living in, in the rainforest. And, and the idea is to open it up, clear it out, and bring in industry. So most of the electricity will be used to create um, products for export. So really, the electricity will be exported, not necessarily as electricity, but as a component of iron ore or aluminum or other manufactured goods. It is hydro dams that now pose the main threat to the Kayapo and other tribes living in the Xingu region. But these dams are not their first brush with Brazilian society. In the early 70s, the building of the Trans-Amazonica Highway, which runs through Altamira, brought highway workers and settlers into their lands. In 1980, 30 Indians were killed by the newcomers in various incidents. Payakan's uncle, Raoni, struck back. His warriors killed 11 laborers who were clearing land for a wealthy rancher. Gold miners also began to arrive in the Xingu Reserve, and as Payakan relates, the Kayapo were unable to persuade the government to remove them. Esses autoridades, esses governo que autorizou a entrada de garimpeiro dentro da reserva Gorotide. It was government authorities who allowed the entry of the gold miners into our lands. And until today, they remain there with the government's authorization. When we sent the miners away, the Minister of the Interior invited them to return. So the government itself sent the miners back. But we are ready to send them away again. It was in the struggle with the Garimperos, the gold miners, that Payakan first proved himself as a leader. Today, he says that violence is a dead end for the Indians. But at that time, he still believed that the miners could be expelled by force. And in 1977, he led a raiding party against them. A young American called Darrell Posey unwittingly went along for the ride. I first knew Payakan in 1977 when I arrived in the, you know, fresh from North America in a, in a Kayapo village without speaking very much Portuguese and no Kayapo. Uh, I had training originally as an entomologist and subsequently as a geographer and an anthropologist. And um, I was working at that time on a PhD dissertation on ethno-entomology 
I remember him very distinctly the very first time that I went with the Kaipo on a, on a trip down the river and into the forest. We thought it was a hunting trip. It turned out to be a raiding trip, which was, um, well, it was the first time that gold miners had ever had, had been bold enough to go into the Kaipo area and, and try to stay. And the Kaipo had tried to get them out of that their reserves without very much success, trying to use the Indian Bureau and the federal police and nothing seemed to, 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 to help. So they took matters into their own hands and, and went to expel the gold miners from, from their lands. And I was, I tagged along on that without knowing what I was getting into because I didn't speak enough Kaipo to have figured it out. But I soon found out. And um, it was quite an amazing experience to participate in that major raid. The miners, as it happened, had been forewarned and had fled. Payakan's party sacked their settlement and returned home. Part of their booty was a power saw. Payakan in the camp that evening showed me um, the uh, manual of how to use the power saw, which he'd never used or seen, actually, up close at least. It was the first power saw that had ever arrived in the village of Gorotiti. And Payakan, I think this is very indicative of how he is, he, he was intelligent enough to have not only taken the power saw, but the instruction manual that went along with it, which happened to be in English. And he also, uh, you know, had figured out that it was English because somewhere along the line he'd had some, some experience with English-speaking missionaries and even knew a few words of, of English and um, figured out that this was in English. So he came and said, can you help me, uh, you know, figure out what this says and, and show me how to use this power saw that we've just, you know, liberated from the gold miners. So that's the first time I met Payakan. The gold miners turned out to be like the mythical hydra a nine-headed serpent that grew two new heads each time one was cut off. In the early 1980s, Payakan led another raid, seizing the mine's airstrip and holding hostage a number of representatives of Funai, Brazil's Department of Indian Affairs. By this, the Kayapo won the right to royalties from the gold production and strict control of the perimeter of the mine, which they still patrol today. But they were forced to concede at least for the time being, the fact of the mine's existence. The problem was that the miners were much better organized than the Indians and certainly much better armed at this point. And um, they also had the support of people in the federal government. And so the gold miners actually threatened to invade the villages of Gorotiri and Kikretum, which are small villages, the largest of the, uh, Gorotiri is 720 people, and we're talking about 4,000 armed gold miners and armed with, you know, pretty sophisticated weapons. So the Kayapa were forced to negotiate. They were forced to allow the, the gold miners back on and, and took a percentage of the profits, which previously they hadn't even gotten that. So um, mining in the Kayapa region was certainly something that more or less they had to deal with, like it or not. And yes, they do get a percentage of that, but most of the people in the village today, I think, would still prefer that there were no gold miners in the region because it pollutes the waters and bring, has brought enormous amount of disease into the region. The Kayapo are not the only people afflicted by gold mining. There is a gold rush going on in the Amazon, a gold rush on the same epic scale that seems to characterize so many aspects of Brazilian society. Other Indian nations, like the larger Yanomami, have also been invaded, and Brazil has a major public health problem on its hands. Gold is processed by amalgamating it with mercury, 
and under the primitive conditions of Amazonian gold mining, this mercury is poisoning both the miners and the environment. Susanna Hecht. The Department of Mines and Energy estimates that between 300 and 500,000 people are in direct contact with mercury. That is, they're in the processing part of gold mining, putting their hands in uh, the, the gold slurry, mercury slurry. It's heated so they're in, in ingesting the vapors. This does not include all the secondary potential uh, victims, which are those who are eating the fish and swimming in the water, eating the birds, eating the animals that are living around these infested and infected areas. So what you have basically in the making is an environmental disaster, an industrial in disaster that it, you know, absolutely eclipses Bhopal. For every ton of gold that's taken out of the Amazon, another ton of mercury is thrown into the ecosystem. The effects of this plague are now inexorably spreading. The Amazon basin on a map looks like a great branching tree of rivers, all running into the enormous trunk of the Rio Amazonas itself. This trunk carries a volume so large that it sends a plume of fresh water 200 kilometers out into the Atlantic from the mouth of the river. A number of its tributaries are now beginning to be polluted with mercury. You have large areas where the Rio Fresco is a perfect example, which is that you have large, large uh, tributaries that are completely ruined by mercury additions, and the fish show very high levels of mercury toxicity. If you look at kids' hair, um, even Indian villages, which seem relatively remote from this whole process, they have very high levels of mercury in their hair. Also, mercury toxicity takes sort of strange forms. It's not like you then keel over with something like the, you know, a recognizable set of symptoms. It's like you're crabby. You don't feel so good. It's not one of these things that you can pinpoint like having, I don't know, your skin break out in spots as with measles or something. The, the public health implications of this are enormous. Susanna Hecht thinks that these implications are likely to be ignored by the Brazilian government not just because the effects of mercury poisoning are diffuse, but also because the miners are a landless, illiterate, and impoverished population working in semi-slave conditions. Gold mining also poses a direct threat to the health of the Kayapo. Tests of Kayapo children have already revealed high concentrations of mercury in their tissues. And gold mining, as it turned out, was only the beginning of the Kayapo's troubles. Darrell Posey. In 1986, there was an accident, a nuclear accident, in Goiana, which is the capital of one of the Brazil states of Goiás. And uh, they wanted to find a place that they could deposit the atomic waste from this accident. And they looked for an area that, of course, as always, that was considered to be generally isolated and where the people wouldn't make a fuss. And that very frequently turns out to be an Indian area, as it does in, in uh, North America. And they chose the Sehaji Kashimbo, which was on the, on the Kayapo Reserve. And uh, the Kayapo heard about it. Payakan heard about it. They organized themselves. They went to Brasilia. They protested. The press took it over. And they, in fact, won their case. Eu levei 90 e poucos índios outra vez invadimos a praça. When I heard about the atomic waste that were going to depo be deposited in our lands, 
I led yet another group of 90 warriors. We went to Brasilia. We invaded the public plaza. We went to the building where the president of the Republic, José Sarney, lives. And because we, of our strong demonstration and our protest, we were able to have this project of depositing atomic waste canceled. This was one of the battles that we were able to win. By this time, Payacan had become adept at influencing Brazilian politics. Both the capture of the gold mine and the protest against nuclear waste dumping had won wide and sympathetic coverage in the Brazilian media. So when the Brazilian government rewrote its constitution in terms unfavorable to the Indians, he was ideally placed to act. With the new constitution proposals and these statutes, which were initially very negative, uh, they were a real, you know, sort of uh, degradation of, of indigenous rights in the original proposals. The Kayapal, of course, together with other native leaders, because we can't say that they had, they can't take claim to having done all of this. But what they did do was to make it dramatic. And what they did do was to have the sense of power and the sense of force and the sense of sort of manipulating the media in order to show up in war pain and in war with their war clubs and singing and dancing and protesting in the most evident way that, of course, fascinates the North American and European press. And uh, that's what they did. They went in and they invaded, uh, literally invaded the Constitutional Convention at times when it was absolutely critical to get the proper voting of the Constitutional Assembly on these different points of indigenous rights to their lands, natural resources, uh, and the right to continue their culture. And, and uh, they went at the right time, at the right place, and they made these, this very visible protest, sort of uh, warlike war lobbying, I guess we'd call it. And the Constitution in the end turned out to have some, uh, some very progressive uh, articles, which I think that the native peoples under them can begin to, in fact, to, to become uh, more prosperous and more independent uh, in order to deal with the issues that are affecting them. Under previous constitutions, all decisions were made for them by the federal government. Under the new Constitution, they can, in fact, organize themselves and get independent legal advice and, and take independent legal actions. The next stop on Payakan's odyssey was Washington, where he and his cousin Kumen Yi appeared before the World Bank and the U.S. Congress. This unplanned visit came about as a result of Darrell Posey's insistence that Indians be allowed to speak for themselves. When I received a letter asking that I talk about traditional management of natural resources by Indians in tropical forests, this was at a meeting at, at Miami uh, sponsored by the Florida International University and the Rainforest Action Network and a number of um, conservation groups. I wrote them back and said, look, I think that a lot of money is being spent on unnecessary congresses. And if you want to know how native peoples manage their natural resources, then why don't you invite native peoples? And I suggested a number of people, which included Payaka and, and others, uh, as people who would be able to do that much better than I could. And they, uh, much to my surprise, I might add, wrote back and said, well, we liked your idea and we have invited them and let's see what happens. And what happened was that the other, that, that Payakan accepted and, and asked that his cousin Kubayi uh, go with him to this meeting and they went. 
I agreed to go with them under those circumstances and to translate for them. And uh, so off we went. They spoke very eloquently, as always, Payakan uh, entranced the crowds. And uh, uh, there were representatives from the National Wildlife Federation, the Environmental Defense Fund, who came and said, you know, you should tell this story to the World Bank. They're the people who are financing the destruction of all this, and, and you should tell this to the American Congress because they're the ones who are, who are liberating the monies that go through the bank to finance these destructive projects. And uh, Paya Khan Kubain said, well, you know, we think that's a great idea. Let's go there. I mean, we'll, we'll talk to them. And so um, off they went, and off I went with them. And I translated there, as I had done in Florida, and they met with congressional leaders and executive directors of the World Bank, and as well as Native American leaders. I think it was very amazing that they would, they would see that there were Native Americans who were lawyers um, and who were defending Native peoples, that there, were, there was an organization of the North American Indian Congress, which was organized to help unite Native peoples, uh, they even did interviews of a Native American radio station interviewed by Native Americans. In other words, they saw that there really was uh, a, a lot that was happening that they didn't know about and a whole system, an international system that they too could plug into and, and get help and, and, as well as help and, and, and an international arena for exchange. It was a very important meeting, I think, for all of them. Shortly after Paya Khan and Kubei's appearance in Washington, the World Bank deferred, for the second time, a decision on Brazil's pending application for a $500 million loan for hydroelectric development, the so-called second power sector loan. This loan would have helped to finance the dams on the Jingu River, which immediately threatened the Kayapo. Official reaction in Brazil was swift and furious. We were, all upon return to Brazil, immediately called uh, by the police and interrogated on a number of occasions, and I was fingerprinted and mugshot and all sorts of things because of uh, accusations that we had denigrated the image of Brazil and that we had jeopardized the Brazil's uh, economic policy because of of this uh, speaking out in, in the World Bank. Uh, I was the first one who was indicted under these charges because it was easy to get at me because of what's called the Foreign Sedation Act or the Lei de Estrangeiros, which prohibit that any foreigner become involved in any kind of political activity or any, anything that affects um, Brazilian internal politics. That didn't come as much as of a surprise, although it was very difficult to see that that, was, that could have been done in as much as I had served as translator and, and uh, there was no evidence that I had done more than that. It became as a great surprise to everyone that the two Indians were also indicted under the same law and uh, were treated as foreigners, which as far as anyone could know, has been able to find is the first time it's ever occurred in, in 500 years of history of contact of white people with Indians. And of course this produced an, an incredible outcry by human rights groups, minority rights groups, conservationists, scientific community, everybody. And of course the, the, the Kayapa, who were incensed by the, this whole business and who came in, in great numbers to give solidarity to Chief Kumei when he went to give his deposition in, in October of, of last year. The preliminary hearing was held in Belém, an old city at the mouth of the Amazon. A large force of armed Kayapo warriors confronted the soldiers arrayed in front of the courthouse. Paya Khan and Kubei then appeared, also in traditional battle dress, and were barred from entering the court by the judge, 
who declared their attire to be disrespectful of his court. Payakan related his subsequent conversation with the judge to his audience in Toronto last November. Com esse câmara na mão, quando o juiz começou a acusar eu como crime, well, let me tell you what the judge did with this little fact. He said, I don't even know how to operate a video camera. How come you claim to be an Indian if you know how to operate a video camera. Therefore, you cannot be considered an Indian, and for this reason, you don't have the rights to your lands that you claim you do as Indians. And I turned to him and I said, the only reason that you don't know how to operate a video camera is because you never took the time to bother to learn. I, however, did take the time because I wanted to learn how to do it. Payakan's exchange with the judge about the video camera, droll as it seemed to his listeners in Toronto, reveals an issue with serious implications in Brazilian politics. In April of this year, for example, the powerful Brazilian army minister told the Foreign Affairs Committee of the Chamber of Deputies that Brazil's Indians were fakes, his word, who loved blue jeans, Japanese watches, television, and other modern amenities. The implication, again, is that Indians are museum pieces who cease to be Indians and lose their rights as Indians when they adopt new technologies. Earlier this year, the case against Payakan, Kubei, and Daryl Posey was quietly dropped during Brazil's annual carnival when the announcement would attract little notice. The issues in the case remain alive. The Brazilian government is currently barring all outsiders from Indian areas. Anthropologists, doctors, and missionaries have been expelled from the Yanomami Reserve in northern Horaima. Daryl Posey and his colleagues in the Kayapo Project have been prevented from visiting the Kayapo villages, and all new applications for anthropologists to work in contested Indian areas have been refused. The Brazilian Anthropological Association is now challenging these rulings in court. Altamira, Brazil, in February of this year. Funds raised during Payakan's trip to Canada have helped to pay for 35 of Brazil's First Nations to assemble in this frontier town. They have come to protest the building of the Jingu dams. They are joined by representatives of other native peoples of the Americas, environmentalists, and a large media contingent. Among the three Canadians who addressed the assembly is Gujao, a Haida leader who played a major role in the long struggle to protect South Moresby Island from logging. We have to stop this thing that's destroying the entire earth. And in doing this, we have to join with other people. We have to seek out people who respect the earth. 
The week of speeches and ceremonies and songs at Altamira was the work of many people, but the key actor was certainly Paya Khan. It was he who focused international attention on the event and who succeeded, at least temporarily, in overcoming the many obstacles which stand in the way of an effective pan-Indian movement in Brazil. In Altamira, we saw the great difficulty and the great cost of bringing Indians from as far away as southern Brazil and as far away as northern Roraima. We're talking about distances that are enormous, and we're talking about costs that are, that, are, that are enormous to bring indigenous groups together. And we had, for example, a meeting between the old Kayapa chiefs and the old Shavanti chiefs. Well, they nearly killed each other 50 years ago. And so suddenly there was this first time eye to eye that they'd seen each other for all these years. And the last time they saw each other, they were like trying to wipe each other out. Um, and we see, of course, the difficulty of people like the Aradas who speak an Indian language that is as different from Kayapa as English is from Chinese, trying to communicate with a common language, which is Portuguese, which neither side speaks very well. So we have all these problems in uniting native peoples in Brazil. Payakan's original plan for Altamira had been to create a permanent encampment at Batania, near the proposed dam site. This was the proposal he put before people in Toronto in November. But as the date approached, local hostility forced him to reconsider the wisdom of this plan. Mudou porque quando nós estava em Altamira, numa chácara que que chama Betânia, nós começamos a sentir a pressão dos pessoal que chamam UDR. They started to shoot above the Indians' camp, and they made a big protest against us and in favor of the dam. So we still don't have enough support or protection to establish a permanent village. And because of this, we changed our minds. One of the purposes of the Altamira meeting was to allow, for the first time, an exchange of experiences between a variety of Indian peoples. There were representatives there from the Indian nations already affected by the giant Tukuroi and Balbina dams, the first of Electro Norte's projected Amazon dams to be completed. There was also a panel of Brazilian government representatives who listened to the week's proceedings. And their presence, says Peggy Hallward of Probe International, was also unprecedented. There were representatives there from the president's office and from Electro Norte, which is the electrical utility that is planning to build these dams. And so this was a way of exchanging views between the government and the native people, which in itself was historic. Up until November of last year, native people were not allowed to represent themselves. They were deemed to be minors and wards of the state, and only FUNAI, which is the National Indian Foundation, could represent their interests. So this was the first time the native people could speak directly to the government and tell their story in their own words. Altamira also had an extracurricular side. Evenings at the camp outside Altamira at Batania, where stories were told and songs were sung, like this quagudal drinking song of Simon Dix. The song says, dip into the wine. 
dip into the wine. Native people from other countries, such as Canada, Mexico, and the States, really offered solidarity to the Native people of Brazil and said that they were with them in spirit and that they had come the distance to deliver these messages of solidarity. And then on the last day, the Native people did this terrific corn dance, which is a very, very important dance, annual dance to celebrate productivity and fertility and also brings young boys into manhood. And it was really beautiful. On the last day, it was the only day it didn't rain, and it was the only time a rainbow appeared. The whole week was during this corn dance. It appeared outside, um, right over the site of the corn dance, and then disappeared when the dance was over, and everyone noticed it. So it was really a perfect ending to a week. The well-publicized gathering at Altamira was probably the end of the line for the World Bank's $500 million second power sector loan to Brazil. Typically, no announcement was ever made. But when I spoke to ecologist Robert Goodland of the World Bank's environmental department in April, this is what he told me. We understand that the Brazil's uh, second power sector loan is no longer being processed by the government. On the other hand, the government has invited us to consider financing a most encouraging new project, which is an environmental loan only to Brazil's power sector. It's uh, mainly environment uh, with some energy conservation and energy efficiency improvements. This is completely new for the bank, completely new for the world. And if um, the government manages to, to pull it off, it will be a brilliant first, and I think it will be most encouraging. This is code, of course a diplomatic way of saying that the World Bank, under heavy pressure from environmentalists and having already deferred the application three times, has finally refused it. What the environmental loan will turn out to be remains to be seen. Peggy Hallward of Probe International coordinated the Canadian campaign to get Canada's World Bank governor, Finance Minister Michael Wilson, to vote against the loan. She says the victory is gratifying but the war is still on. Plan 2010 is still on the books. Brazil says they will still build all of the dams that they have proposed, including all of the ones in the rainforest, including the ones that would flood lands belonging to native people. But defeating a World Bank loan is highly symbolic because most private banks and other government aid agencies look to the World Bank to send a signal about what's a good project or good sector to invest in. So defeating the World Bank loan will actually make it more difficult for Brazil to raise international money. They could still use their own money, but I think all of the dams collectively will cost something like 40 to 60 billion dollars, and there's no way that Brazil has that kind of money. They'll have to go international to, to look for that kind of money. So defeating the World Bank loan is very important. It also told us that when you get the public involved and when you focus um, an aid issue on, on a politician that you can get a lot of response. So that was very encouraging. The downside is that the World Bank now has repackaged aspects of the second power sector loan um, and added another component and renamed it. They're talking about, I think it's called an energy and conservation loan for 350 to $400 million that will invest in environmental protection and energy conservation. It sounds great on, for, for, from that short description, 
but we haven't seen any documentation from the bank and we probably won't. And our main concern is that it's still going to a Brazilian government that has this terrible track record and could very well end up financing the dams that we've been trying to defeat. So I'm actually still very nervous about the World Bank loans, even though they sound very green. With the World Bank's next move uncertain, concern has now shifted to the possibility of private financing, particularly Japanese financing for the Jingu dams. What is at stake, according to Daryl Posey, is not just the survival of the peoples and forests of the Jingu region, but also the survival of the knowledge on which the future of the Amazon depends. Posey went to the Amazon more than 10 years ago to study Kayapo agriculture. Today, he insists that this knowledge constitutes a science just as authentic as our own. I think it is incredibly important to make people realize that there are scientific systems out there other than our own. And these scientific systems are much more ancient than our own. The knowledge about the Amazon that native peoples have is something that's developed for 10, 20, or maybe even 30,000 years. And in our work with the Kayapal, we've found in just the village of Gauratiri over 660 different species of plants, and 98% of those plants have uses. And about 78% of those plants are used for, for, for medicines. And some of them have multiple uses for medicines. Now, we just don't have the time, the money, uh, and the people to be able to take these and do systematic studies of these plants. But I, I just read in the paper today that, there, there's, that the most promising plant for, for the cure of AIDS seems to be now coming from a root plant that's been used for thousands and thousands of years in China. You see? So we have all of these drugs, these, this, you know, the world's pharmacy in the Amazon, and we're cutting it down without even knowing what's, what's happening to it. And, of course, people say, well, these are unknown. You know, we're going to lose things we don't know about. And, of course, it's completely absurd. The native peoples know about these things. And, of course, we're not talking about a science. We're not talking about an indigenous science. We're talking about sciences that have developed in each of those cultural groups has its own scientific system and its own knowledge system. And we've not done anything about looking at those plans and, and even less about what native peoples know about it. There are a handful of people in the world who are in fact concerned with these issues. That's tragic. The discounting of native knowledge is often evident in the language used by scientists and conservationists. It's very often said, for example, that species are disappearing before they are even discovered or that science knows only the barest rudiments of tropical ecology. Native knowledge is not usually considered relevant to these claims. The reason, says Darrell Posey, is that it is encoded very differently than what literate societies call science. I remember working with um, an ecologist in Gautatiti once, and we were talking about a mythological animal called the Mrukaak, which is a very feared animal, the Kayapal, and it's one which, uh, well, amongst other things, protects young fish. So it's very important as an ecological concept because any time that people see spawning fish, they, they go away from it because they're afraid that this large mythological animal will zap them. It's sort of like a large electric eel, so it can like electrocute you from 500 meters or something. Now, we were talking about this animal with an ecologist, and uh, we were coming down the river and looking at a riverbank which had caved in. And the old Indian said to us, you know, that's caved in because the Marukaak had its home under there, its sort of cave. And when it moved, it left the cave empty and the water caused all that to, to fall in. So that's the Marukaak. 
And the ecologist said, you know, now this is why I don't believe in native people's science, because we know that what caused that was erosion. So, I mean, you know, how is it that you expect me to believe in some mythological animal? And I said, well, you know, I'd just like to ask you a simple question. Have you ever seen an erosion walking down the street? And he said, well, of course not, because erosion is a concept. It, it's a, you know, a whole series of things that deal with you know, the types of soil, the velocity of the water, the vegetation, and so on and so forth. And I said, well, exactly. So why is it that you insist that native peoples only deal with physical material concepts? Why can't you allow them also to have abstract concepts? Isn't it much more interesting scientifically to figure out why it is that these people who know all of this, this knowledge would have something called a mrukhaok. It's much more interesting scientifically to go and find out what is a mrukhaok than just to dismiss it as being unscientific. By paying this sort of attention, Posey has come to appreciate the subtlety and complexity of Kayapo land management. Agriculture in the Amazon so far has been a cataclysmic failure, leveling the forest and leaving behind a wasteland of sterile and degraded pastures and fields. The Kayapo system, on the other hand, alters the forest without destroying it. We have been looking uh, with Dr. Susanna Hecht at UCLA for the last six years at traditional management of soils. One of the major problems in the tropics is soil fertility and, and maintenance of soil fertility. And so-called modern agriculture is difficult to maintain, even in temperate zones. I mean, you require agrotoxics and fertilizers to do that. But in the tropics, it's even more difficult and precarious. And what we have is a Kayapal system that, that over uh, sustained management, ev uh, we've looked at a 40-year profile of soils, we see that those soils have maintained their fertility and in some cases actually increased fertility. That's absolutely revolutionary because there's no other land management system that can do that that we know of in the tropics. And here we have clear evidence to do so, but we had the, the most incredible difficulty getting the funding to analyze those soil samples. I don't understand that. The Kayapo practice what is sometimes called shifting cultivation, in which small patches of forest are cut and farmed in succession. It is usually portrayed as a crude form of land management, viable only for small populations in command of large areas. What Darrell Posey and his colleagues have discovered is that it involves much more than just gardening for a couple of years, then repeating the process on a new patch. Abandoned fields, as they've traditionally been called, are not abandoned. Each, to, each of the reforestation sequences of, uh, from an agricultural plot to the forest does in fact have, in each of those sequences, uh, a very important inventory of useful plants. And many of those plants are actually planted and put there in order to attract useful animals. We have tended to divide these things into, into separate categories, which, you know, is just not the way it is with the Kayapal system. Forests for the Kayapal are much more interesting if they have many different stages of for reforestation, because then they have a, m a much greater diversity of uh, flora and fauna. And that means that a forest, a uniform forest, uh, they don't want to cut it down uh, as white men do, you know, just wipe it out, but they do want to open it up. And by opening up a high forest, you allow for the sun to penetrate and you create a whole bunch of new uh, microecological zones that can be then, uh, you can either introduce plants into them or things will sort of naturally come up. And uh, what you've done is increase the ecological and biological diversity in that particular plot. 
Now, uh, in that plot is where plants that we normally think of as being domesticated are put because domesticated plants require a, a much more sort of attention from human beings. But we have also overemphasized domestic plants much too much, and we have missed probably what is 85% of the entire plant use category, which are the non-domesticates but manipulated plants that have been consistently selected for for thousands and thousands of years, but which we don't consider to be necessarily domesticated. Now these, if you want to call them manipulated or semi-domesticated plants, are plants that make up the bulk of the resource use of native peoples, and these are the ones that you find in the so-called abandoned fields which are not abandoned. So the agricultural plot is like a clearing of a forest in which domesticated plants are put, but then each of those reforestation phases has these other vastly larger number of plants which are all useful, which go into this reforestation sequence. So what I'm saying is that maybe what we ought to do is give up these ideas of having agriculture or agroforestry and think of agriculture as a phase of agroforestry in which we are using then uh, looking at a lot of alternative plants which are not necessarily domesticated but which can in fact be grown and manipulated in an integrated forest context. Darrell Posey's discoveries about Kayapo agriculture seem to me to be potentially revolutionary in a world which needs both to preserve forests and expand food production. Whether anyone is actually listening in Boomtown, Brazil, is another question. In the last few years, Brazil has faced a crescendo of international criticism over the pace of deforestation in the Amazon. The Brazilian government has responded with modest reforms, most recently an end to ranching subsidies, and a belligerent rhetoric along the lines of, you did it, why shouldn't we? All indications are that it intends to press ahead with industrial development, including all the projected dams in the Amazon. This is not a happy prospect for Payakan and his people. But they are already battle-hardened, and Payakan has shown a remarkable flair for public relations and political tactics so far. His sea of troubles certainly isn't ended, but his enthusiastic reception in Toronto at least argues that a lot of people are beginning to see just how much hinges on the outcome of his struggle. Payakan's translator in Toronto, anthropologist Catherine Howard. All of the mistakes that we in North America made over the past couple of hundred years could be prevented in Brazil. It's one of the last places in the world where those errors could be avoided for the first time if we could, for once, make history go right, it would be terribly exciting. The fear is, however, that the forces are too great to be able to stop them now, that, in fact, history will repeat itself yet again. Before I even started my work in the Amazon, a Brazilian anthropologist said to me, you're beginning a, a career that is going to lead to great unhappiness. There is no research that can be done on the Indians that doesn't reveal great tragedies. There's so much at stake. And our hopes can become so high to see somebody as eloquent and courageous as Payakan speak on behalf of a culture that has taken thousands of years to develop and could be destroyed so quickly if they didn't have leaders such as him. 
Eu estou aqui para dizer também para este país And so I have come to say that the problem that is happening in the Amazon rainforest is not a problem just down there. This is a problem also for the people of Canada as well, because the money that you give to your banks finances projects which are actually destroying the rainforest, destroying the lands of indigenous peoples, destroying the livelihood of the people who live there. What I want to ask all of you is this. With our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, if we have destroyed all of the forests, how are we going to explain this to them? How are we going to explain to them that what we did in our lifetime led to the destruction of a forest that they never saw? This has been the third program in our Repeat Ideas series From Commons to Catastrophe, The Destruction of the Forests. The series is written and presented by David Cayley. Production assistants Gail Brownell and Faye McPherson. Producer Jill Eisen. Paya Khan's translator was Catherine Howard with additional translations by Barbara Zimmerman. We'd also like to thank the World Wildlife Fund of Canada. Next Friday, we continue our exploration of tropical rainforests and we'll hear some possible solutions. Transcripts for this five-part series are available for $7. To order a copy, write CBC Enterprises, Forests, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Enclose a cheque or money order for $7 payable to CBC Enterprises and please be prepared to wait six to eight weeks for delivery. We've also put together a reading list on forests, and you can get that free by writing us directly at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. <laughs>